Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rod. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So most Sunday evenings I speak to my parents on the phone. They live across the water near Belfast, so we don't see them in person all that often. And the weekly phone call helps us to keep in touch. But what do we talk about? Their news? How our son's getting on at university? Which National Trust properties they visited this week? They're life members. They like going to those places. How our daughter's driving is progressing? That sort of thing. We tend to talk about the detail, places we've gone, things we've done, stuff we've heard, what's been going on. There's not often a great deal of big picture stuff in our conversations, the big overarching issues 
of our lives. We're asked for St. Paul in our reading from Philippians chapter 1, page 1178 in the church Bibles. For him, it's all about the big picture in this reading. He doesn't tend to major on nitty-gritty details in this passage. No chit-chat about National Trust gardens, tea and cake for him. If there had been, if he had been there, that's not what he would have been spending most of the time on in his letters. For Paul, it's all about his one joyful purpose. He's very focused, he's very intense about it. And his one purpose that he shows us in this reading is to exalt Jesus Christ. To see Jesus honoured, worshipped, known, preached. To see lives changed as Jesus forgives and takes up residence in people's lives. To see the gospel, the good news about Jesus advanced. It's all about Jesus. It's all about bringing honour to Jesus' name. And all of that brings Paul joy, even in the most challenging of times for him. So let's dig in. He says in verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As Becca said last week, Paul is writing from prison to his friends in the church at Philippi. Remember the paper chains there that we made to remind us of his imprisonment? He ended up in prison several times in the course of his ministry. And it seems most likely he's writing this letter from the final imprisonment in Rome. If that's so, then the little phrase, what has happened to me, is doing a lot of work here. He'd been arrested in Jerusalem on false charges, maliciously misrepresented. He'd been kept in prison for years rather than facing a swift trial. Having appealed to the emperor, there'd then been a lengthy sea journey at the bad time of year with a shipwreck along the way. And then in Rome, there's still no sign of a proper trial or of justice being done. But Paul doesn't go into that detail. None of that's said here. What has happened to me is all he says. Paul knows the details, as do the original recipients of his letter. The detail of what has happened is not the point. You know how sometimes people love to dwell on the wrongs that have been done to them? Who, what, why, in great detail? That's not Paul's way here. Paul rather writes about what has happened because of those things. Because that's much more exciting. Underlying everything actually is something else that Becca mentioned last week. Paul's confidence that when God starts something, he's going to finish it. And here is that in practice in Paul's life. Through all the imprisonment and injustice and uncertainty, God has been at work. The gospel has been advanced. Those plotting evil against him in an attempt to destroy and confound this new church 
they've seen the opposite happen because God's going to complete what he's begun. It's what he does. It's a bit like how way back in Genesis chapter 50, was it last year we did a series on the life of Joseph? Um, Joseph describes at the very end of the book, he's describing his experience to his brothers and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Here it's a little bit like that, but in the life of Paul. Moving on to the, to the present, Paul describes his own present personal circumstances and sufferings, verses 13 and 14, or rather he describes what's happening in those circumstances and sufferings. His imprisonment is giving him new opportunities, and it's encouraging others to take his place. He writes, It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul is not the kind of man to miss an opportunity to tell others about Jesus. Even if they are the elite imperial guard assigned to watch this dangerous religious radical. Paul sees God turning Challenges into opportunities. His response to imprisonment here isn't to ask why or to express disappointment or to blame people. Rather, it's to ask himself what his role and task is now in his present circumstances for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about focusing on God's purposes not just his own preferences and well-being. And and the same actually applies beyond Paul's own personal circumstances. Verse 14, there's a a knock-on effect on his fellow Christians. They've been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly, he tells us. Which is good, because you could... See, well, look at what happened to Paul. I'm not going to go and do that. But, but no. And note who it is, actually, that's been encouraged in this way. It is the ordinary Christians. It's not just the church leaders. It's the ordinary Christian in the pew or whatever they sat on in church those days who are being emboldened. There's quite a challenge here for us in whatever circumstances and whatever sufferings we find ourselves in, and we do, and I know that. The challenge here is to nevertheless ask ourselves, okay, how can I best serve Jesus Christ here and now so that even in these circumstances, his name is lifted up? The world outside of Paul's prison is facing challenges too. The churches, in verses 15 to 18, he goes on to speak about the present reality of a divided church. A church that's beset with envy and rivalry. It seems that people were trying to make trouble for Paul by their effective preaching while he was stuck in prison. Look at me, I'm much more useful for the Lord than he is. 
It's a strange motivation, certainly. But the human heart is a strange thing. And we do need to watch our motives. There's danger in a disunited church. It's not good. When there's inconsistency between what we say and do about Jesus and what's actually lurking inside our hearts. That, that seems to have been the issue here. Paul is describing real Christians preaching the real gospel of Jesus Christ, but with wrong attitudes lurking inside alongside that. We don't know a whole lot about the issues here. Why were these people feeling resentful towards Paul? Why do they want to stir up trouble for him? We don't really know. And perhaps that's for the best. Remember how in 1 Corinthians, in that famous chapter on Christian love, Paul wrote, love keeps no record of wrongs. Anyhow, we don't really know what was going on in detail in their minds. If we did know, actually, then we might feel as if this didn't apply to us because we could look at what had been the problem there and say, that particular problem doesn't apply to me, that's fine. Or we'd find it was about some other group of people and then we could look down on them and that's quite fun. Whereas we actually don't know what the precise problem was here other than that it was somehow about envy and rivalry. And since we don't know the detail, it kind of forces us each to examine our own hearts to see if within us today there is any envy or rivalry or selfish ambition which could trip us up or undermine the church that we belong to. With all that said, Christ is preached. As Paul says in verse 18, whatever the problems with motives, good stuff is happening. The good news is being proclaimed. People are hearing and responding. They're experiencing new life as they trust in Jesus Christ, as they find their world turned gloriously upside down. Paul looks beyond other people's mixed motives and sees it Ironically, but wonderfully, the gospel is being advanced. Christ is being exalted. And that had always been his own motive and aim. It's not about Paul's renown, but about Christ's. So, hooray! Whatever the disagreements, Paul and those who saw themselves as rivals to him... They're actually united by the truth of Christ. They just need to realize that. They're united on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done in dying and rising again, the effect of his work in terms of reconciling and forgiving sinners like us, bringing us into his kingdom. And they're not even just united in believing this truth, but united in proclaiming it. They are each glorifying God as they share this truth. Those other teachers in their churches and their cities and Paul where he is in prison. They're doing the same thing in their particular circumstances. 
And for Paul, that is the most important thing. Christ is preached. It's the only thing that truly matters. It's the deciding principle in God's doings and in Paul's own decision-making. There are other people also preaching Christ, and that's more than okay. That is fantastic news. There are, I mean, today, many churches, different traditions, maybe a different style of worship, or maybe tending to attract a different demographic group. Do they preach Christ crucified? Do they call people to put their trust in him, repent and believe? Then rejoice. We don't all need to be exactly the same as each other to recognize each other as Christians and to be glad that we are all part of his one church. It's okay. It's good. Paul moves on. He's talked about his past, he's talked about his present, and he moves on to talk about the future and how this joyful purpose to glorify Jesus Christ is going to play out in his own life, in his own future. For him, some things are absolutely certain and much is not. Some things he knows will happen, some things remain to be seen. But he starts with what he does know for sure, verses 19 and 20. He knows that what has happened will turn out for his deliverance. That's in verse 19. A more literal translation would be, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. Whatever happens, God has saved Paul by the forgiveness that came through faith in Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. That has happened. He has been saved. God is saving Paul as God works in Paul's life and circumstances and works to change him from within. And God will save Paul from all condemnation when Jesus returns as judge and king of all the earth. Of all these things, Paul is very, very certain. I know, he says, that they will turn out for my deliverance. And did you spot how this happens? Look at the earlier part of verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ... What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The way God is going to do those things in Paul's life is twofold. Through the prayers of God's people and through the help of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. And there's a challenge for us here, isn't there? To to long for both of these to be more and more the case in our lives Let's pray these things for each other. You praying for me and me praying for you. For God to be at work in each of our lives and in the circumstances we find ourselves in. We need to know who each other are. What's going on in each other's lives. What, they, what you desire me to pray for. What I desire you to pray for. 
and for us each to be more and more open to the Holy Spirit's work in us as well, so that we can all be as confident of God's deliverance as Paul was when he wrote to the Philippians. Because these things are powerful. The prayers of God's people and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Just like Paul, the details of our future may be pretty uncertain, but like him, we can hold on super confidently to what is certain. And in our decision-making, to have this as the determining factor, what will best serve the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? How may I best magnify him and lift him up? Uh, How do I need God to change and mold me now? How do I need him to bend my will, change my mind, so that he may be more glorified in my life and in what I do in his name? But Paul's in prison. He doesn't know how things will pan out for him in human terms. Will he live or will he die? As he puts it so memorably in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a very bold statement. But Paul is confident. He had encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knows the dramatic change that Christ had brought about in his own life. And so he knows the central reality about death. Which is that when death comes to him as it inevitably will, it will mean being with the Lord Jesus. And that certainty means a lot to him amid the uncertainty of his immediate situation. He might live a while longer. He might be freed to go and visit Philippi again, as far as he knows. Or he might die. But he knows that his uncertain future will involve one of two wonderful opportunities. He might get to stick around on the earth, working fruitfully for the Lord, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, lifting up the name of Jesus. Yay! Or he might soon be executed and get to be with the Lord in person real soon. Also, yay! It's a dilemma, but it's a dilemma between two glories, between two beautiful experiences of Jesus' power. And to the non-believer, this may look absolutely crazy. I mean, if you think that this life is all there is, then death to many people really doesn't look like gain. Last year, um, a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly died unexpectedly young. And one of his colleagues, in her tribute to him, quoted from verse 23 of our reading. She wrote, with Christ, which is better by far. And the outrage generated by those words was astonishing. 
Because people who didn't understand where they came from didn't understand what they meant accused her of being incredibly, grossly insensitive to the dead man's widow and children. Well, it wasn't better for them, was it? They said. The outrage was very, very notable. People just didn't get that it was a quotation from Scripture. And more than that, they just couldn't understand that for the Christian, the hope of being with the Lord Jesus, and then after the resurrection of eternity with him in his new creation, that that really is better by far. The, the incomprehension was really very, very striking. In, in the final couple of verses of our reading, Paul brings himself down to earth and to what he can still do by reminding himself once more of that joyful purpose, to exalt Jesus Christ. I know that I will remain and will continue with you, with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul's purpose is to help others grow in Jesus Christ. And for Christ to be glorified in his own life and in theirs, that's how he makes decisions. That's what matters most of all to him. That lets him kind of relax a bit about the whole live or die thing. Does anyone here, I wonder, keep a photograph of a loved one with you, maybe in your wallet or your purse? It's a beautiful thing to do. But Paul isn't quite like that, is he? His his picture of Jesus isn't small and private. He would be more the sort of person to put those he honours on billboards by motorways everywhere. Can you imagine that? He wants everyone to hear. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is so beautiful. His work is so all-encompassing. The joy he gives is so amazing that he can't help shouting about it. Let's live as Paul did, determined that whatever comes our way in life or in death, that we will want to see Jesus glorified, preached, believed in, exalted in our lives and in those of others with the same overflowing joy. Amen.